Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew is structured around five discourses or five great speeches of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first discourse or speech is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. The second discourse includes our Gospel lesson for this morning. It's called the Missionary Discourse from Matthew chapter 10. Now there are three other discourses in Matthew. We won't mention those this morning. We want to focus on Matthew 10, the missionary discourse, because it contains Christ's commands and Christ's encouragement for his called workers in the field, but for all Christians as well. Verses 32 and 33 of our gospel lesson, whoever acknowledges or confesses me before men, that's any of us, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And this section, this gospel reading, and really all of Matthew 10, deals with hostility, the hostility that Christians will experience in the world. Verse 21 assures us that the gospel will divide families. Verses 22 and 23 remind us that the gospel will divide communities as well. And you see this today most often in Jewish, Hindu, and Muslim cultures where conversion to Christianity brings shame upon the family. If you become a Christian in those cultures, your family may conduct a funeral service in your honor, signifying that to them you are now dead and they will shun you from that point forward. And true story, I was reading recently of, a, this is in a Muslim country, a man converted to Christianity, and his wife was so incensed and so shamed over this that she ground up glass real fine and put it in his food, and it killed him. And that woman was applauded as a hero by others in her community. These examples of family persecution happen every day. And that's not even taking governmental persecution into account. You may have heard of the growing gap regarding income in our country between the rich and the poor. But I submit to you there's a growing cultural gap as well, and you don't need me to tell you that. For example, we no longer can agree on what marriage is. We no longer agree on what a man is or what a woman is or whether parents can have authority over their own children. The book of Hebrews says that we Christians live as aliens and strangers in the world and boy, there are days I feel like an alien. This is not the planet I grew up on. It was George Orwell who said, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who proclaim it. And that is so true. Today, truth is considered hate speech by those who hate truth. So, 
Given all that, how do you define success in such an environment as we live in today? What does a successful life look like to you? Does it mean we give up our beliefs and go along to get along? The world would welcome that. The world defines success as popularity and prosperity, personal peace and security, personal happiness. But Jesus would define success differently. Page 11 in our gospel, in our um, bulletin for this morning, page 11, Roman number one, Jesus defines success as being like him, even in his suffering. Being like him, that's success. Verse 24 on page 10, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, we don't know what Beelzebul means, but it's certainly not a compliment. And the point is, it's far better to be like Jesus and hated by the world than to be like the world and loved by it. Being like Jesus means that although the world may hate us, we do not hate the world. God loves this fallen world, and we are called to love it as well, and we shall. Being like Jesus means that we bless those who despise us, and we pray for those who belittle us. Roman numeral two. As the hymn we sang earlier proclaims, your fears have no foundation. They have no foundation. You know, faith and fear are inversely proportional. When, when faith goes down, fear rises. And when faith goes up, fear recedes, it declines. And faith in God's promises is the antidote to fear. So what are some of those promises? Letter A, truth will not remain hidden. Truth will not remain hidden. Verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That is to say, truth does not hide very well. Truth has a way of rising to the surface regardless of our efforts to keep it hidden. You may suffer slander from others, and you will. Your good name may be called into question, and it will. But even if your vindication does not come in this life, it will come in the next. On the last day, God will resurrect not only your body, he will resurrect your good name. And he will vindicate you in the presence of those who once mocked you. And if you offend, if those who offend you do not repent, they will have to answer to God Almighty, and we would not wish that upon anyone. Therefore, we pray for those who oppose us, that they might be granted the gift of repentance, even as that gift has been granted to you and to me. Letter B. Men are not worthy of your fear. God alone is. God alone is. 
Fear needs a worthy object. And in God's estimation, man does not qualify as being worthy of your fear. His life is a vapor. He's here today and gone tomorrow. And even while he's here, his power is limited by God himself. Man can do to you only what God allows, nothing more. Therefore, verse 28a, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. The Greek word for soul, suke, it means your life force. Your soul is what animates you. Genesis 2, verse 7, God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living soul, a suke. So only God can give you your life, your soul, and only God can take it from you. No man can take your life from you. Your soul lives on after men destroy the body, and your soul will rejoin your body at the resurrection. That's why Jesus says in verse 28b, rather fear him who alone can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is to say, point number one, the fear of God drives out the fear of men. I cite Genesis 39. Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph. Now it's important to understand that Potiphar's wife was Joseph's boss, just like Potiphar was. She was his master, in a sense, his mistress. He was her slave. But he repeatedly said no to her advances, asking this question, how could I do this thing and sin against God? You see, he feared God more than he feared his master, and he suffered accordingly. He was thrown in prison. When the fear of God increases, the fear of man decreases. And point number two, perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so the fear being described there is what we call, lowercase a, servile fear, the fear of a servant. As sinners, for example, we know we deserve punishment. We know we deserve God's righteous wrath. That is servile fear. It's the fear of a servant who is at the mercy of his master. Servile fear is the fear of the disciples who are with Jesus in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. And this big storm arises and it threatens their lives. And the disciples cry out in fear of the storm until Jesus speaks. And the storm ceases immediately. Then the disciples fear Jesus when they realize that the man in the boat with them, the man sitting next to them, has more power than the storm. It can be scary to sit next to someone who has that much power. That is servile fear. And the antidote to servile fear is love. When you realize that this all-powerful man sitting next to you in the boat loves you enough to give up everything he has for you, he gives up his mother, his brothers and sisters, his work, his reputation, even his own life. When someone loves you that much, 
you need never fear what he might do to you because his perfect love for you has cast out all servile fear. His love cast out all fear of what he might do to you if you disobey. That fear's gone. Instead, you begin to fear what you might do to him, how you might hurt him. That's your fear now. That's what St. Paul meant when he wrote, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, when someone loves you unconditionally as God does, the last thing you want to do is to hurt him. The last thing you want to do is to grieve his heart. That is what we call filial fear. That's letter lowercase b, filial fear. It's the fear of a beloved child. Filial fear and love belong together like two sides of the same coin. And let her see, you're never without your father. You're never without your father. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Your father. Now note, God is not the sparrow's father. God is your father. And according to Jesus, the sparrows are the least of all the birds. They're the cheapest ones of all. And yet not even one of them dies without your father being present with the bird. And if your father cares so much for even the least of all the birds, which he's not even father of, how much more does he care for you, you who are his own? That's Christ's point. That's a good one. Roman numeral three. A heart that fears and loves God, a heart that fears and loves God, cannot help but to confess publicly what God has done and said through his son, Jesus Christ. My friends, our hearts have been captured by Christ's love and his love for the world. We cannot help but to love him. And to love him is to acknowledge him. To love him is to confess him before men. We can't help ourselves when it comes to this. But to confess him publicly is not safe. It's dangerous. Years ago, Mary Eberstadt wrote a book titled It's Dangerous to Believe, in which she records example after example after example of hostility toward Christians, not in China or in Iran or in Cuba. She writes about hostility toward Christians in our own country, hostility toward Christians in academia, in government, in the military, in the private sector. She writes about believers who were fired, who were denied promotion, forced to pay steep fines, lost their scholarships, all because they would not compromise their deeply held beliefs. And this is most important. In many, if not most, of the examples that she cites, these believers did not return evil for evil, but they bore their suffering as Christ would, praying for and showing kindness toward their antagonists. 
My friends, we may be strangers and aliens here, but we are strangers who bless when we're cursed. We are aliens who fear God more than we fear men. We are foreigners who cannot help but to confess the living Christ to a dying world. The world may not listen. The world may mock and threaten. So be it. The world can do nothing more to us than God allows. Meanwhile, we cannot help but to confess the good news of God's love for the world, which is revealed in the person and work of Christ crucified. In his name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.